you would remain standing at this time and open up with me to Hebrews chapter 1. I want to welcome you here to White Oak today. It's an exciting day. We, we love the Word of God because we see it as a window into a better world. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's fine. It'll be on the screen behind me. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus Christ. How many times do you think that name has been uttered in this room since this room was built in the 1960s? 10,000 times? 100,000 times? How many times do you think the name Jesus Christ has been uttered in the history of the world? A billion times? A trillion times? More? I, I have no idea. I've only been preaching for a little while, just a few years. But the aim of every sermon that I've ever done has been this, to show you that your view of Jesus is too small. That your view of Jesus is too small. That whatever image you have of Jesus in your mind, dial that up by a trillion and you still have not begun to scratch the surface of how great he is. This being named Jesus is massive. You cannot exaggerate him, for he is the pinnacle of existence. Jesus is the pinnacle of existence. Songs are sung about him in adoration. People devote their lives to him. People spend their mornings praying to him and asking for him for direction. Billions of people profess him. Countless men and women throughout history have laid down their lives for him. The Bible, the very word of God that proceeds from God, is basically a a sign that's lit up that points directly to Jesus. Jesus is the pinnacle of existence. He is better than angels, the second person of a triune God. He is the perfect creator, the mighty healer. He is the world's greatest hope, the heralder of the gospel. He is the incarnate Christ, God in the flesh. He is the wrath absorber, the sacrificial lamb. He is the resurrected king, the sovereign of the world. Those who heed his call are called into a glorious purpose. Those who die with his name on their lips live forever. When you get called by Jesus, you get called into a glorious thing because Jesus is the pinnacle of existence. 
Creation swirls around him. Nature sings to him. Angels bow to him. Kings and presidents and rulers will throw their crowns before him. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Willingly or unwillingly, it will happen. Jesus is the height of existence. There is no one like him. The Apostle John, after writing the Gospel of John, put it this way. He says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus is both the beginning of all things and the end of all things. And the book of Hebrews delves into the person and work of Jesus more than any other book in the Bible. So to give you some background, the book of Hebrews, which we're talking about today, was written to a group of Jews who had become Christians in the first century. And although they had believed in Jesus, they were tempted to revert back to their Judaism, their former religion, their former faith. And so Hebrews was written as a reminder to them of the superiority of Jesus over everything. As one writer put it, the theological epicenter of Hebrews may be summed up in one word, Christ. Jesus is superior over every belief system. He is exalted over every religious system. He is exalted over every religious practice. And most of all, he is exalted over dead works that try to get us to God. And Hebrews is here to prove that point. A lot of people say Hebrews is kind of hard to understand. I can relate. It's kind of a longer book. And it delves into the Old Testament, which we're not that familiar with, right? So if you don't don't really understand Hebrews, you can think of Hebrews as a bridge between the Old and the New Testaments. It sort of connects it all together. And I think as we're nearing the end of this Reclaim the Wonder series and going through the Bible, I think it makes sense to pause and to, to sort of like think about some of the things that we've come across in the Old and the New Testament. And so we're going to start there, just like bridging the gap between the Old and the New Testament. And Jesus is that bridge. And then we're going to continue that bridge on through Romans and into your life. Because my goal here is not that you would like know more about Romans, you know, just like one, two, three, like more about Romans or its homiletical structure. I want you to be transformed by the gospel. We need to be transformed by the word of God. We need it to impact our life. And so the question I want you to have on your mind is very simple. And and the question is this, if these truths that I'm going to talk about are true, what does that mean for your life? If these truths that I'm going to proclaim to you out of the Bible are actually true, what are the implications for your life? In fact, in this moment, I want you to picture sort of the biggest anxiety or the biggest uh, fear or the biggest sin that you have in your life. Do it right now. Just sort of picture it in your mind. What is causing you the most angst? Just hold it there in tension. And I'm going to proclaim to you Jesus Christ, the pinnacle of existence. And I hope that by the end of this, that thing that seems so big will shrink in comparison to the glory of Jesus. 
So we're going to be looking at the Old Testament. And I, I know it's kind of hard. We were there. We made it past it. We're in the New Testament. Well, guess what? We're back. We're back in the Old Testament. We're going to learn a little bit more about it, but I think it's going to make sense. All right? So if you're not super interested in the Old Testament, that's okay. I'm going to try to make it as interesting as possible. I'm going to connect it to Jesus. So what we're going to be looking at is three important offices or three important roles in the Old Testament that God instituted. And the roles were this, the prophet, the priest, and the king. In the Old Testament, these three roles were very important with connecting the people of God, the Israelites, to God. Prophets were important in in communicating his message. Priests were important in being an intermediary. And the king was important in leading the people in justice and righteousness. And Hebrews is going to demonstrate to you that Jesus succeeded in filling these three roles when everyone else failed at succeeding at even one of them. This is the massive Christ that we are going to talk about. So looking back at the Old Testament, we see that one of the most basic needs that man has is to hear from God. Like we are completely and utterly lost without him, directionless. Like you you may think you have control of your life, but there are so many external factors that you have no control over that dictate our futures. How can we possibly lead ourselves into tomorrow? We don't even know what it brings. We need someone to lead and to guide us. And the Israelites were the same way. They needed someone to lead and guide them in the truth. So God sent them prophets. That was his method of doing it. He sent spokesmen to the people to lead and guide them in the way. They would lead them in truth and righteousness and they would communicate God's message. He sent people like Abraham and Moses and Isaiah. Do you remember them? Old Testament figures. They were prophets communicating God's message, teaching people how to obey him. There were two problems. First, the prophets often failed to communicate the message clearly. They themselves sinned. So instead of leading the people toward God, which is what they were supposed to do, they instead oftentimes led the people away from God. It's not a very good communicator or messenger of God's word, but this is what happened with the prophets. Abraham was a liar. Moses was impatient. Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. So how could they be God's spokesmen when they themselves were not believing and living out the message? This was the first problem of the Old Testament prophets. They failed to guide the people the way they were supposed to. And secondly, very simply, they died. They died. You can't lead people when you're dead, right? Moses, Abraham, I mean, they were good for a little while, but then they died and the people needed someone else to lead them. And so through the Old Testament, we saw how God had to continue to send these prophets over and over and over again because they would lead the people for a little while and then they would sin or they would die and then God had to send another prophet. It was a broken system. Abraham, Moses, Jonah, Joel, Amos, Daniel, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, all those little books of the Old Testament that you used to memorize in order but now you can't even name, those people were prophets and they all died. But Hebrews demonstrates that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Going back to Hebrews 1.1 in our passage, feel free to, to go back to that if you want. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
So this is the Old Testament. This is what he's talking about. God sent prophets to speak to the people. But look at what he says. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You see, Jesus is the ultimate prophet and messenger of God. You see, all the other little problems that plague the other prophets, they don't plague Jesus. Jesus never sinned. His message and his actions all were in complete harmony all the time. Jesus was the perfect messenger come from God. And not only that, but Jesus died, but he came back from the grave. So where you had this problem with the Old Testament prophets where they kept dying and God had to keep sending people, Jesus died, but then he came back. And so he forever lives to lead and to guide us into truth and righteousness. Moses wasn't able to do that. Isaiah never did that. No other prophet in the Bible, no other prophet in any other religion has been able to do that. But Jesus, because he rose victoriously, can lead us forever in truth and righteousness. So like I said, you may not care about OT prophets, you know, like you're not a seminary professor, don't really care, that's fine. But you need a prophet just as much as I do. You need someone to lead you in the way, to lead you in truth and righteousness and tell you the way that you're supposed to go. We all need that. And Jesus is that person for us. And the Bible is his communication to us and it leads us in the way. And that way is called the gospel. All that God speaks, Jesus speaks. So Jesus is a better prophet. Part two, Jesus is a better priest. So in the Old Testament, we see that not only do you need to hear from God, you need a way to be connected with God. Sort of one of man's most basic needs is to be connected with God. You see, the aim of most all religions in the world is to connect with God in some way. Somewhere deep down, I think most of us recognize that that we are not able to communicate and to connect with God on our own. He's he's massive, he's huge, and we're small, and we're sinful. We need someone to go in between us and God, lest we be consumed. And in the Old Testament, people connected to God through a priest. He was basically the the intermediary, the the go-in-between between the people of Israel and God. There were a couple of problems. All right, so first, I want you to imagine yourself in Old Testament Israel. You live in a tent. You're a nomad. You kind of walk around the promised land, you know, here, going here and there. You got cattle, and you sin. What do you do? All right, so you got to go to the priest. You got to confess your sins. You have to offer up an animal sacrifice. You got about that part, right? You got to bring a bull, bring a goat, bring a dove. You got to go, and you got to slaughter it. And then you have to ask the priest to plead to God on your behalf. I'm not making this up. This was the system. This is what they had to do. Obviously, we don't have altars here for you to do that. So we don't have that system anymore. But this is what they did back in the day. But there were some problems with that system. And the first problem was that the priest sinned. Sound like a recurring theme here? The very people who were supposed to be in between the people of Israel and God sinned. They were horrible intermediaries. They were horrible intercessors. 
they had to continue to make sacrifices. And for us, like sacrifice is a weird concept. It's kind of weird, I know. But I think sacrifices reminded people that their sin has deadly consequences. Sin has deadly consequences. And so the priests failed at their job. Day after day after day, they had to offer sacrifices for not only the people, but for themselves. They failed in their role to be intermediaries between the people and God. It was an endless cycle of sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice. Secondly, the system was broken because they were offering up animals as sacrifices. It's kind of weird to us. This is 21st century modern America. We don't offer up sacrifices, obviously. But most ancient religions, most ancient cultures in the world have this idea of animal sacrifice. I think because people recognize that that there's something wrong with us and the stuff that we do deserves a punishment. So the people would take an ox or a lamb or whatever it was and they'd offer it up and they'd say, God, I deserve to be right there. But because of your grace, I'm not. And the only problem with that is Hebrews 10.4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It doesn't work. It's not good enough. The sin that we commit is too much to be placed on like a little animal. There's no way that's going to work. But when Jesus came, he proved that he is both the perfect sacrifice and the great high priest. I told you we were going to get in some Old Testament stuff, right? You guys are learning today. Hebrews demonstrates that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and the great high priest. Jesus is the only one who can cover your sin and my sin fully and forever. And the way that he did this was he did not offer up an animal sacrifice. He offered up himself. He took our place on the cross, sacrificed himself for our sin. And because of that, we are cleansed. Jesus didn't have to continually offer up sacrifice. He only had to do it once. Hebrews 4 says it this way. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, we are but yet he was without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you put your faith in Jesus, you have been cleansed of sin without a shadow of a doubt. You are cleansed of sin. The evil that you have done is wiped away completely. That is how totally perfect and acceptable Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was. Jesus' sacrifice was superior to the Old Testament system of animal sacrifices, which could never truly save us. Lastly, Hebrew shows us that Jesus is eternal king. Jesus is the eternal king. In our day and age, I think we understand the need for a wise ruler, right? We look at our politicians, we look at our presidents, and we think, man, they are utterly failing in leading us toward God and toward righteousness. They are utterly failing in protecting us and leading us in truth. 
when I look at our politicians and I look at our presidential candidates, I, I can't help but think that they don't have our best interest in mind. And the kings in the Old Testament were just like that. The people of Israel were in the same plight. The kings in the Old Testament often led the people away from God. The cycle continues. The, the, the prophets led people away from God. The priests led people away from God. And the kings led people away from God. Even the good ones like King David and King Solomon, they sinned and then they died. Which is the other problem, right? They sinned and then they died. None of them could bring about an eternal kingdom. But Jesus, though he was king, lived a life serving his people. He heals us. He has compassion on us. He heals our wounds. He provides for us. And he protects us. And most of all, I trust him. I trust Jesus when he says that he is looking out for us. He has our best interest in mind. And he is ushering in a kingdom that will never go away because he will always live to rule it. Finishing out our Hebrews passage uh, in verse uh, 3 and 4, it says, After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, it's more excellent than theirs. Sin, Satan, and all God's enemies will be crushed under the coming of Jesus' eternal kingdom. This is the promise of the Bible. That unlike our politicians and unlike our presidents, we have a king who's looking out for us. And he promises to do that forever because he lives forever. Hebrews demonstrates to us that Jesus is the perfect prophet, he is the perfect priest, and he is the perfect king. I started out by saying that Jesus is the pinnacle of existence. There is no thought above him. He is Alpha and Omega. He is infinite. You cannot go above him. And I tried to prove that by using the same argument that Hebrews does. That that no one else could fulfill this role of prophet, priest, and king. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. Was to show that no human being to do that. And, And to prove that, I want you to think about, put yourself in that position. Pretend you're the Messiah. You're the Savior of the world. Could you be the perfect prophet? I thought about that for myself. Like, could I communicate God's message perfectly and clearly to the people without ever sinning? X, already failed at that. I don't know about you, but I've already failed at that. Could I be the perfect priest? Sinned. No, I couldn't. Could I be the perfect sacrifice for you? No. I would be crushed under the weight of trying to atone for your sins because I also have sinned. Could I be a king? Sometimes I think I can do better than our politicians. Maybe you think that. But could I be the eternal king that leads people in righteousness? Never. The point of the Old and the New Testament together is to show that Jesus is God himself, the pinnacle of existence. He is the king He is the prophet. He is everything. He is the pinnacle. Jesus, by masterfully fulfilling these roles when everyone else failed, proved that he himself can bear the weight of these offices. And only God can do that. So what do you do with that? 
What do you do with that? A lot of information, right? What do you do with that? I don't want to just give you more information. I don't want you to just know more about Hebrews. It's like, great, you you know Hebrews is about prophet, priest, king. I want more than that. I told you that the, the goal of preaching is to show you that Jesus is massive. And that this massive Jesus has power to transform your life. At the beginning, I asked you, what is the, the massive thing in your mind, this like anxiety that you have in your mind that seems so huge? I want you to imagine that thing sitting next to the risen and resurrected King Jesus. Nothing can match his power and nothing can match his love for us. So what do you do in light of these truths? You live boldly. You live boldly boldly. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians, indeed I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The Christian life is is anything but boring. When Jesus calls you, he calls you into a life of radical transformation. He is reconciling the world to himself and he calls every single one of you to come and be a part of it. To leave your old life of darkness and to join him in bringing about a new kingdom. He has not reserved that task for just like John or me or like random mission. No, it's like he has called you to be a part of that. He wants us to live boldly and dangerously for his kingdom. Like don't, Don't let the aim of your life be so small that you're trying to expand your bank account and trying to expand the square footage of your house. No, let the aim of your life be expanding the kingdom. Have huge and massive goals for your life, for being a part of what God is doing. My appeal to you today is very simple, to live boldly for Jesus, for he has a proven track record taking care of those who follow him. Be radically generous with your money, for Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Join us on one of our short-term mission trips. We have those every so often. We try to do one at least every year. Go come join us and share the gospel of people who've never heard. Volunteer your time at this church and show people that you care about them. You love them more than you love your own time. Jesus has called us into radical obedience and sacrifice. When the pinnacle of existence calls you, it's a big call. So as we close, I'm going to invite the band back up. But before we do, I want you to just sort of like, just take a moment. uh, Close your eyes if you want to. But I'm going to read part of Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the Hall of Faith. You're probably familiar with it. But I see no other place in the Bible that shows what happens when people radically follow Jesus Christ. When they radically follow God's call on their lives. Hebrews 11. I'm going to start in uh, verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. 
Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as Pharaoh's daughter, uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded the disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. And again it says, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And in closing, they were commended for their faith. It says in the beginning of verse 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. My plea to you is to boldly follow Jesus into the future. He is the king, he is the prophet, he is the priest, but most of all, he is our God and he will take care of us. So let me pray over us that we would live into that truth this week. Dear Heavenly Father, my mind just explodes with the imponderable thought that Jesus Christ is God himself. He is King, he's Lord, he's Master. Lord, I pray for the people of White Oak. I pray that whatever massive thing they have in their mind, the thing that causes them anxiety, whether it's sickness or some sin or some addiction or some family problem or some financial woe, whatever it is, Lord, I just pray that in this moment that you would just become a blazing center in their life. That you, the most powerful being in existence, said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you.
Be with us, Lord. Help us to live holy and bold lives for you. May we answer your call when you do call us. When we stumble, pick us up again. But most of all, may we press on and into that glorious future forever with you in Jesus Christ. And it's in that powerful name that we pray. Amen.